KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the coming repeal of constitutional protections for abortion leaves us with a lot of work to do to protect and expand abortion rights in the states where it will remain legal and to help women in states where it will be banned. Katha Pollitt of The Nation will explain what we need to do now in politics, healthcare, and funding. Also, an Amazon of the avant-garde. The ballet dancer and choreographer who started out in revolutionary Russia, worked in wartime Kiev, and then came to Hollywood in the 30s. Branislava Nijinska, the long-neglected sister of the legendary dancer Vaslav Nijinsky. She had an amazing life. Lynn Garafola will explain. Her new book is La Nijinska, choreographer of the modern. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Election Day in the California primary is next Tuesday. Of course, a lot of us have voted already, so it's really more accurate to say that voting ends on Tuesday. But for starters, let's talk about the L.A. mayor's race, where, of course, billionaire developer Rick Caruso is running against Karen Bass. The black woman who started out as a community organizer in South L.A. went on to serve in Congress, headed the, the Congressional Black Caucus. Yesterday, I got a mailer attacking Karen Bass. This one said she missed 562 votes in Congress. And the fine print at the bottom says the mailer was paid for by the Los Angeles Police Protective League. It says they've contributed $3,450,000 to a PAC opposing Karen Bass. Actually, that's the name of the PAC, Neighbors Opposing Karen Bass. So uh, let's talk about the LA Police Protective League and their role in this election. The cops in one guise or another have long played a role in L.A. politics. I remember back when I was editing the L.A. Weekly in prehistoric times, <laughs> I was struck by the fact that the uh, uh, sitting police chief, then Daryl Gates, had a history of making endorsements in the mayor's race, even though he, uh, unlike the police union, he himself had, was appointed by, as it were, the mayor's appointees on the police commission. That struck me as backward. And I actually had uh, some uh, interns at the Weekly uh, call up uh, the 20 other largest American cities to see if they had their police chief playing that kind of role in their city politics. And the answer was no. Uh, so we included this we, I, I wrote a piece on this, and when the Christopher Commission, which was uh, producing uh, a slate of reforms after uh, the uh, Rodney King verdict and uprising, it included this in their recommendations that the chief shouldn't be making endorsements in uh, city, the mayor's race or city council races. No such restriction uh, is uh, laid upon the police union just as, in fact, it's not laid upon the teachers union or any other union whose members work for the city as uh, an SEIU local and some other locals do. So I, I can understand that they certainly have the right to do this. Uh, of course, 
What this is really about is uh, that Karen Bass has been uh, since day one, uh, since she was a community organizer in South LA, an organizer uh, to do police reform, uh, not for abolishing the police. She never took that slogan and never actually believed it, but uh, for uh, reforming the police, creating more civilian oversight, creating more civilian input, that sort of thing. Could I just underline that point? Karen Bass, unlike some other Black leaders in South LA and nationally, is emphatically against defunding the police. She says that, quote, defund the police is, quote, probably one of the worst slogans ever, close quote. That's why she's been condemned in this race by Black Lives Matter. Melina Abdullah, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter LA, wrote an op-ed attacking Karen Bass for, quote, pandering to affluent white West Side and Valley voters at the expense of Black, Latinx, and working class ones. But still, the police are spending millions trying to defeat her. So I guess it doesn't work to try to make peace with the police. Well, I I mean, I think Karen Bass's position is one that politically reaches certainly more swing voters than defund the police. And much as I respect uh, Melina Abdullah, uh, there isn't that much support for defunding police in the communities, she says, you know, would 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 gain from this uh, African American, Latino, uh, and 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 so on, where where there's been a there's a perpetual Hobson's choice about defunding the police because crime uh, is relatively high in those communities, and um, you know it, it's a classic situation of can't live with the police, can't live without the police. So uh, it's a little more complicated than the equation that um, you know Abdullah. Uh, makes in her, the division that she makes in her op-ed. So the police have made it clear they don't want Karen Bass to be mayor. They presumably want Rick Caruso to be mayor. And they've also uh, been spending a lot of money in the city council races. As you said, the city council approves the budget for the police and the police have become very active in endorsing their supporters and opposing people who are not in favor of increasing their budget. I should say there are two city council candidates who do say defund the police and abolish the police. And of course, they are taking on the police and they expect the police to oppose them. These are a community activist, Unices Hernandez, who's challenging incumbent Gil Cedillo on the east side, and labor organizer Hugo Soto Martinez, who's running against incumbent Mitch O'Farrell in a Hollywood district. Eunice Hernandez is an openly police abolitionist. She argues the police should be replaced by mental health teams, drug treatment services, and other programs. She's supported by the LA chapter of, uh, of DSA. Hugo Martinez says, once we address the structural issues of economic and racial inequality, our city will no longer need a police department as currently constructed. Hugo Martinez statement is a little bit like when the Messiah comes. <laughs> and I, 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 I think he intended it to a certain degree in that, in that way. One thing I wanted to check with you, going back to the attack mailers against Karen Bass, uh, how bad is it to miss 562 votes in Congress over 12 years? 
Oh, it's over 12 years? Yeah. Uh, the uh, technical term is that's bookus. That's uh, <laughs> Yiddish for virtually nothing. No, I mean, she missed uh, votes on naming post offices. And, and it's interesting that the police would highlight this kind of thing, uh, which is really kind of pablum, because some of their own positions, I think they understand, might not be popular in and of themselves. So this is almost as much a distraction as it is an attack. For example, she missed a vote on the Need-Based Educational Act of 2015. Remember that one? Uh, It'll come to mind within a year or two. (laughs) Okay, exactly. So also on the ballot next Tuesday, another one we care about, the the effort to recall progressive prosecutor Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. The polls show him running behind. And of course, that calls to mind our own progressive prosecutor, George Gascon, who's also facing a recall attempt. The signature gathering is still underway here. If the most liberal city in America, San Francisco, recalls its first term progressive DA, Will L.A. be next? Next Is this the beginning of the end of this very brief uh, moment where we've gotten progressive prosecutors in half a dozen of our biggest cities? This is one of those instances in which correlation is not causation. As I said, crime has been rising everywhere where there are progressive DAs and where there are reactionary DAs. Uh, but progressive DAs are politically vulnerable uh, in that kind of environment, and Lord knows you know, San Francisco and parts of LA have experienced two things, uh, which tend, I think, to drive voters to the right. One is an increase in crime. One is an increase in homelessness in your neighborhood. Uh, And uh, those are real challenges uh, for particular, for holders of particular offices, DA, high on that list. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in Los Angeles, a regular feature of this broadcast. News this week is that 55,000 employees of LA County represented by SEIU Local 721 reached a contract agreement this week after threatening a strike. They will get a 12% raise over three years. These are social workers, custodians, parks and rec staffers, and there's a second agreement with 7,000 nurses and other healthcare workers who got a 15% raise after threatening a three-day strike that was to begin this week on Wednesday, yesterday. These are the people who work at County USC Hospital, Harbor, UCLA, Olive View, and half a dozen community health centers between you know Lancaster and, and the Downey. The vote in the nurse among the nurses on striking this week for three days was 98% in favor. The nurses also got double pay for overtime and everybody got money for rising health insurance costs and for elder care and child care, monthly payments to every one of the 55,000 employees of the county. The SEIU is doing a good job, sounds like. Yeah, I mean, well, look, uh, the uh, revenue coming in from taxation in California has uh, gone way up. The state has a budget surplus of nearly $100 billion. And uh, cities are doing well, too. And counties are doing well, too. And inflation is high. And if workers aren't winning 
major wage increases right now, uh, something is wrong. Uh, and, and especially they, and especially the nurses after going through the COVID epidemic, where they all had to work grueling overtime hours under very difficult and dangerous conditions. That, yes, yes. I mean, there's a, a, a clear sort of moral case there. But, you know, I think there is for uh, public servants across the board, nurses only more so. Now, at the intersection of class politics and environmental activism, you have news for us about the next generation of buses in Los Angeles. This is $500 million worth of new buses for the LA Metro Transit District. Tell us about the news about the buses. These buses are being manufactured uh, in Anniston, Alabama, this is likely to go national too. There's a a company, uh, a New Flyer, that uh, manufactures buses in various places around the country. Now, since the major entities purchasing buses are big city transit districts, in theory, that gives uh, friends of those workers, progressives, some leverage. And that leverage is exercised by a group called Jobs to Move America, uh, which is uh, the brainchild and led by someone who has played a crucial role in Los Angeles uh, before this, Madeline Janis, who founded the LA Alliance for a New Economy, which uh, gave us uh, the living wage ordinance way back in 1997 and community benefit agreements. She persuaded the LA uh, Metro Transit District, on which county supervisors and other local leaders sit, to pressure New Flyer when they got this contract to hire minorities and women and local people uh, who might be excluded from the workforce in Anniston, Alabama. And when New Flyer bought uh, Jobs to Move America, took them to court. And this week, Jobs to Move America announced yes, it would hire 45% of its workers out of minority communities, and which in Anniston, Alabama, largely means African-Americans, women, veterans, and, and, and so on. And I think there's reason to expect that this will increasingly be the norm as transit districts make these kind of rail and bus purchases. O over the next few years, this will become the norm. I would expect those workers' wages to go up. Uh, I would expect those, you know, this pressure might relate to the unionization of those workers as well. This is from Jobs to Move America. What it means is the coming electric fleet all around America's big cities uh, will have uh, worker-friendly conditions attached to their production. And, and this is from the purchasing power of, uh, of these transit districts. And getting back to what Madeline Janus was arguing in 1997, that taxpayers' money should not be subsidizing poverty wage jobs and racially discriminatory jobs. Also on the climate front, fascinating uh, report published in The Prospect about public opinion on fossil fuel companies. Uh, this is a poll uh, reported by Stan Greenberg after the huge spike in gasoline prices um, as a result of the war uh, in Ukraine against Russia, his polling firm asked a cross-section of Americans which concept is more fundamental, 
the climate crisis or the energy crisis. And of course, the Republicans are running on the energy crisis. The Democrats have screwed up America's energy policy. We need to unleash the power of the fossil fuel companies to drill more and frack more. What did Stan Greenberg find? Stan Greenberg found that there was a substantial majority saying what we have learned from all this is we have to hasten our uh, move away from fossil fuels, where we are clearly uh, vulnerable to this, this kind of disruption, and, and more towards uh, clean sources of energy, wind, solar, and what have you. Uh, more people thought the climate crisis uh, was more serious than the energy crisis. And Stan, who was a longtime veteran uh, and much respected pollster in Democratic Party circles, is, wrote this in the prospect uh, advising his fellow Democrats, look, guys you, and gals, you can run on this. You can, uh, uh, you can say that, you know, I am the candidate. Uh, backing uh, a move away from the fossil fuels that we're now paying uh, way too much for uh, and that we're vulnerable to pay more for in the future and towards cleaner energy. One last thing. Donald Trump yesterday sent his followers an email about the Georgia Republican primary, which we talked about here recently. That's the one where his candidates for governor and secretary of state lost by a huge margin. In Trump's email yesterday, he says the Republican primary was rigged. What should we conclude from this? What we should conclude, of course, is that any, any election in which Donald Trump or the people he endorses loses are ipso facto rigged. And the ones where he wins or the candidates he supports win are ipso facto pure and clean. <laughs> Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Next week, we'll be talking about the results of the California primary. Looking forward to that. I won't have to use the words ipso facto, hopefully. <laughs> Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Today we're going to talk about abortion, but we're not going to complain about the Supreme Court or denounce the Republicans who put those people on the court. Today we're going to talk about all the work we need to do now to deal with the coming end of constitutional protection for abortion. And for that, we turn, of course, to Katha Pollitt. She's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, usually we blame some of our friends and allies for what's gone wrong, for not doing enough. Sometimes we even blame the pro-choice movement. It's true. The pro-choice movement is coming in for a lot of criticism. And maybe the most important thing is being too white, too upper middle class, not connected enough to the actual women who end up having abortions, who are disproportionately black and brown. So there's a lot of turmoil in the pro-choice movement right now. But you know what? In terms of this specific Alito decision and what's happening now with the probable overturn of Roe v. Wade, I don't think that is really relevant <laughs> at all, because 
what's happened is that Trump got on the got into the White House despite having three million fewer votes. He got to put uh, three anti-choice justices on the Supreme Court, and he really doesn't have anything to do with the nature of our movement. So we have work to do, and we have some great people and organizations who know how to do it, who we can help support, work with. We expect 26 states to ban or greatly restrict abortion as soon as the court makes its announcement, which will almost certainly be sometime this month. Your latest column for the nation includes a list of ways to fight for abortion rights now. I see that winning elections is at the top of your list. It's number one. And we do have primaries underway this month and next month. And of course, we have a big midterm election in November. Let's talk about winning elections. Well, uh, my dear friend Francis Kisling says, just give up on the red states. The pro-choice movement has worked very hard to um, elect people there with not much success. And it's time. I mean, remember the massive shower of gold for Wendy Davis in Texas? That was a complete failure. (laughs) And she thinks we should shift our focus to the blue states and shoring up abortion rights there and providing actual services, such as organizing travel from abortion banned states. But I don't agree with her about abandoning the red states. It's going to take a really long time, I think, to uh, win the state legislatures back. But I think if we give up on that, our problems are only going to get worse. And there are some purple states that we could be shoring up too, like Pennsylvania, for example. And there are some states where the state legislatures are close to having democratic control. Arizona and Michigan. Uh, Arizona electing one more Democrat in each of the state houses will give Democrats a majority in the state of Arizona. In uh, in Michigan, I understand it's something like three seats in the state legislature. And of course, Democratic governors can veto laws passed by Republican state legislatures. So there's a lot of political work to be done, even in those states which are which are close, but currently under Republican control. Right. And there's a very good point. And I think one way I would criticize not just the pro-choice movement, but Democratic voters and liberal voters is they don't pay enough attention to the state legislatures. This is where abortion law is made. We focus obsessively on the White House, which, of course, you have to do, and on federal races, which, of course, you have to do. But the state legislatures are really important. And we have really not done enough there. And it's going to take a while because we're really far down in most of these states, not in Arizona and Michigan, though. So let's let's go. Go, Michigan. There's an organization called the States Project, which has actually done the work of finding the closest states, the closest races in those states, the best chances of winning. The States Project has done all the work uh, on that. And then let's talk about the blue states. There's a lot of work to be done in the blue states, too. Of California, where I live right now, uh, they think that the number of people who will come to California for abortion care will increase from 46,000, which it was last year, to something like 1.4 million. Uh, that's going to require a lot more doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, and so on. And that takes us to the second item on your list, the medical profession. What do we need to do there? Well, you know, most OBGYNs will not perform abortions. 
Um, and that's kind of shocking because abortion is something that one in four women will have in the course of their reproductive life. And it's just part of regular health care. And it should be treated that way. Many medical schools don't teach the procedure at all. And we need to make them do that because routine gynecological care is what abortion is. And then there's the whole question of hospitals. The economics of running a standalone clinic are very daunting, especially given low reimbursement rates from Medicaid. And that's one reason clinics have been closing, even in blue states. So hospitals could take on some of this work, but very few do. In 2017, they performed only 3% of abortions. That includes secular non-Catholic hospitals, which is interesting because we always hear about how awful the Catholic, the Catholic hospitals are on everything having to do with uh, reproductive health care. And that's all true. That's not going to change. I mean, you know, the Pope is the Pope, but the other, the secular ones don't have the religious excuse. And we could be doing a lot, I think, to pressure them to perform abortions. And we also need to encourage, help more people become doctors and nurses and nurses assistants to provide abortion medical services. In California, the legislature is creating a California Reproductive Scholarship Corps, which will provide funds for people to get trained. Everything from nursing assistants up, up to physicians. This also has to include we are reminded, people from diverse backgrounds, people who are willing to work in rural and remote areas. So this is a place where the politics of state funding and expanding medical care are both engaged. Well, California is really out there in front. And another state, I want to say a word for my part-time home state, Connecticut. Connecticut has passed a package of laws which not only will give state constitutional protection for abortion, but laws that will protect providers, abortion travelers, and those who help them from the legal reach of anti-abortion states. Because as you may know, people are talking about, well, say you live in Missouri and you come to Connecticut for your abortion, can Missouri sue the people who give you that abortion? And that's all to be decided, but Connecticut is not going to turn anybody in. So that's great. And it also does the thing with codifying the right of some non-MD medical workers to perform some abortions and to give out abortion pills. So that's all really good. So number one was politics. Number two was expanding medical care. And number three, only number three on your list. A lot of people would put this number one is money, money from donors. But who should you give money to? Where are the most important places? You know, when people think abortion rights, the first thing they think of is Planned Parenthood. But Planned Parenthood is an immensely wealthy organization. Their, their most recent financial report shows they have $2 billion in their endowment, and they just got $275 million more from Mackenzie Scott, the divorced ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. Planned Parenthood LA, where I lived, I looked them up. They have $100 million in assets and $20 million in annual contributions. They, they do fantastic work. You know, they run, they run all the clinics. But even Planned Parenthood says that other groups should get money before them, especially groups that serve, you know, the underserved people of color in more remote and rural areas. 
you've been writing about this for decades. How should you make contributions most effectively to promote abortion rights? Remind us of some of your favorite groups here and where to start. I'll do that in a minute, but I want to just correct something you said. Planned Parenthood does not perform the majority of abortions in the United States. Those are performed by independent abortion clinics, um, and they are usually the last. I mean, some of them are doing really well and others are struggling along, partly because of this Medicaid reimbursement thing and other reasons. So people go to Planned Parenthood because it's, you know, it's the branded banner place. But they should also think about giving money to abortion funds. And what these are are often volunteer organizations that raise money to help low-income women and others pay for their abortion care. This is very, very important. And they're having their fundathon now, which is unfortunately over by the time uh, your this piece will run. You can still but give money. You can still give money. Just go to NNAF. Dot org, find your own, you know, there, there, there are almost 100 abortion funds. The and National Network of Abortion yeah. Funds, NNAF.org. And there are almost 100 funds, and you can find one that's near you and support it, or one that's not near you, uh, support a whole bunch. And, you know, if they had more money, their money goes very directly to helping, helping patients. And that is what we need to do. We need to help poor people get their abortion care. Well, thanks to you, I looked up the NNAF list of grassroots organizations for my home state of Minnesota, and I looked up Duluth. The NNAF group in Duluth is called the Hot Dish Militia, H-O-T-D-I-S-H, an acronym, Hand Over the Decision It's Healthcare. Hot dish, <laughs> which, of course, is a big Minnesota thing. All Minnesota politicians have to be able to cook hot dish, and it's kind of casserole. Different counties have different favorite hot dishes. And the Hot Dish Militia provides financial support for people seeking abortion services in Duluth. And they also engage in political action. They're 100% volunteer-led. They have a book group, and they have the annual Hot Dish Bake Off, which this year raised $20,000. So that's just one of the 90 groups in the National Network of Abortion Funds, and there's lots of other wonderful ones. There's also a group I'd like to recommend, which is the Bridget Alliance. And what the Bridget Alliance does, which is based in New York City, it covers the cost of everything you need to get your abortion to, if you have to travel, except for the abortion itself, which funds will pay for. So they will cover the cost of transportation, food, lodging, childcare, whatever the patient needs. You know, here's the a little bit, it's not discouraging, but it shows what we're up against. The average client of Bridget Alliance needs a thousand dollars. Needs a thousand that's a lot of money. Most people we know from you know, studies of people of family economics, half the people in the country or thereabouts could not come up with five hundred dollars, even given a, a ex, of an of an extra expense, even given a month to find that money. So this is really a big thing for for people who find themselves with an unwanted uh, surprise pregnancy. Planned Parenthood emphasizes the importance of supporting groups engaged with reproductive justice, which is the lives of poor people and people of color. And they list in particular 
sister song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, the largest multi-ethnic reproductive justice collective. They recommend the Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. They recommend We Testify, which amplifies the stories of people of color who've had abortions. And in Texas, they recommend something called the AFIA Center, A-F-I-Y-A. And Planned Parenthood lists these ahead of giving money to Planned Parenthood. So I like that. One other thing that many groups like the ACLU put on their what you can do list is tell your story, especially if you're an older woman who got an abortion before it was legal. And we know some of these people. We do, indeed. And I think that is very important. Um, I think that one of the problems with the whole abortion situation is that abortion is so stigmatized. People think they don't know anyone who has one. They have a lot of stereotypes in their mind. For example, well, the people who have abortions, they're these cold-hearted career women. They're people who hate children. They're sluts. They're too lazy to use birth control. All kinds of stuff like that. They don't know that the person, a person in their family has had an abortion. Um, their best friend has had an abortion because it's so shameful. People just put the experience out of their minds. And I think it's really helpful if people can talk about what they themselves have experienced. And let me say a word for the ACLU disclosure. I'm on the board of the ACLU of Southern California. Even after the Supreme Court ends constitutional protection, there's still dozens of legal battles to be fought around the different parts of abortion rights. One of the one of the key ones involves the abortion pill. The abortion pill is good for up to 10 weeks, 70 days. But the Trump administration, Food and Drug Administration, required that all patients of the United States seeking the abortion pill had to pick it up in person at a medical facility. And the ACLU sued the FDA and won. And today, the FDA has permanently repealed the in-person dispensing requirement. And that is a significant victory. And there's going to be a lot more legal fights like that, which are kind of low profile, but are going to affect thousands, millions of people. And so I'm a supporter of the ACLU also on the who to fund for abortion rights. Well, the pill is going to be a very big deal. In fact, it already is a big deal. It's very popular. I think almost half of the abortions in the United States are now performed that way. And there are ways of getting it, even if your state says you shouldn't be able to have it. So people should go to plancpills.org to find out more about that. You know, there is really, realistically, John, there's no way that California can go from performing 40,000 abortions a year to performing a million and a half abortions a year. Yeah. Um, there's going to have to be other other ways. And I think provision of pills is, is probably going to be a big part of the story. And one more thing that was in today's news here in Los Angeles, it's not really a what you can do item, but I, th- I found it fascinating and a bit of good news in a month where we've had nothing but bad news about abortion. And this comes from, of all places, the Vatican. Remember, the Archbishop of San Francisco made a big deal out of announcing that Nancy Pelosi, 
who of course is Catholic and from San Francisco, would be denied communion because she supports abortion rights legislation. And of course, Biden is Catholic too. So this was a big issue. Would the Catholic Church deny Biden communion? Today, the Vatican announced that one of the 21 new cardinals will be the Bishop of San Diego, even though he's outranked by the guy in San Francisco uh, who denied Nancy Pelosi uh, communion. The guy in San Diego, Bishop Robert McElroy, issued a statement saying, criticizing his superior in San Francisco, he said, quote, the Eucharist is being weaponized and deployed as a tool in political warfare. This must not happen, close quote. Uh, He's also been a leader among U.S. bishops in questioning why the bishops' conference insisted on identifying abortion as its, quote, preeminent priority. He suggested the preeminent priorities should be racism, poverty, and climate change, not abortion. And and Pope Francis promoted him to cardinal instead of the guy in San Francisco. So there's a fight even inside the Catholic Church over how important they should make abortion and abortion politics. And Pope Francis has taken a step uh, in a good direction. Well, that's really interesting because in 2018, Pope Francis compared abortion to a mafia-style killing and says it's it's the equivalent of hiring a hitman. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for thank you for that report. Okay. You know, I just I think this Alito decision, if it actually happens, which I guess it will, I think it's woken a lot of people up. I don't know how long they'll stay awake because people have not historically been as adamant about abortion rights as I wish they would be. Um, But maybe now that the end of Roe is so close and it's going to affect so many people, I mean, 26 states, that's really kind of amazing. Maybe we're seeing the great awakening. Maybe we're seeing the great awakening. We have a lot of work to do in the meantime, and we have some great people and some great groups to work with in these battles. Katha Pollitt wrote about six ways to fight for abortion rights after Roe for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Katha, thank you for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the ballet dancer and choreographer they called an Amazon of the avant-garde. Starting out in revolutionary Russia, working in wartime Kiev, and then coming to Hollywood in the 30s, Branislava Najinska, the long-neglected sister of the legendary dancer Vaslav Najinsky, She had an amazing life, and for that story, we turn to Lynn Garofola. She's Professor Emerita at Barnard College of Columbia University, a dance historian and curator. Her new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. We reached her today in New York City, Lynn Garofola. Welcome to the program. Thank you. 
Well, let's start with ballet in Russia and how it was transformed by the currents of revolutionary politics there, starting with the 1905 revolution. And this means starting with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and their revolutionary conception of what ballet could be. Well, I think 1905 is is a really important year because there were a series of strikes throughout the imperial theaters at the Alexandrinsky Theater, which was a drama theater and always a little more liberal left than the very aristocratic Mariinsky Theater where ballet was. But nevertheless, there was a student strike among the ballet students, including Nijinsky. And a number of the other dancers uh, went out on strike in solidarity. And in fact, a number of dancers were dismissed as a result of 1905. So you sense that as a result, there was a kind of restiveness in the um, group. And this created a new group of uh, dancers, dancers with other expectations, with the sense that ballet was something that could, that was malleable. It wasn't frozen into the stultified forms of the uh, 19th century. In other words, you could have the Sleeping Beauty, but you could also have the Rite of Spring, which was obviously very, very different. So this was the world that, in a sense, formed Nijinska, and we're working with her brother on some of his innovative choreographies, being, in fact, kind of the clay for his experiments, the physical clay for his experiments, that she, in a sense, had a practicum in how do I learn to choreograph? (laughs) You know, you didn't have composition courses as you do throughout the dance field in colleges. But this was a kind of practicum in how you begin to think about taking movement apart and reassembling it. Then in 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power. You found a treatise that Najinska wrote apparently in 1918 about movement, a kind of manifesto. It's still an amazing uh, document. Tell us about about that and about what was going on in Russia, in Russian ballet after 1917. Well, obviously what was going on in 1917, we know, the nation audience knows what was going on in 1917. And this too affected all aspects of, of life. Um, it has affected the arts, the visual arts, and I think a key person in Nijinska's, what you might call transformation at that point, was her encounter with the visual artist um, Alexandra Exter. And I think this really opened Nijinska's eyes to, to other things that were possible, that you had to get rid of all of this kind of literalism, that one could begin to think about pure form and that this pure form could rely on technique. I mean, it's kind of unusual there. And this 1918 treatise, which was never published and which was really an attack on ballet as she knew it, both the imperial ballet, but also the Fokine ballets that she had seen. And there, there's also implied an attack on her brother, on what she calls uh, the cocottes, meaning the prostitution that was going on within the ballet world. And certainly there was prostitution in the imperial theaters in this, I mean, high level prostitution. There were favorites. There were the grand dukes would have this and that and well-to-do men would have mistresses, sometimes boyfriends. And her brother was caught up a little bit into that. And of course, his relationship with Diaghilev was one 
uh, was a romantic one as well as a professional one. So when Nijinsk is saying that, she's saying, I want no part of that world. I know what I want no part of this older form of theater dance. And I want no part of these ideas that I myself loved initially of, of mm -hmm. Fokines and it, to move forward. My favorite lines that you quote in the conclusion uh, are 1918. I want senseless acrobats to become creators again and professionals should be destroyed. Yes. <laughs> professionals should be destroyed. Professional was her her dismissive term for people who were trained to be ballet dancers, trained in the imperial theaters, trained who had the full training. I mean, she respected them because she knew the work that went into it, but that's not what she wanted. She wanted intelligent, educated dancers. And then she went to Kiev. We know a lot more about Kiev now than when you started this book. What was a Kiev in 1921 and, and why did she go there? Well, first of all, she had gone there in 1915 because she had returned uh, from the West. She was no longer with the Ballet Russe. She and her husband were living in St. Petersburg and they needed a job. World War I had just begun. And they got a job at something called Narodny Dom, the People's House, where uh, they were choreographing for operas. And then they began looking around for a better situation. And they went to um, Kiev, where she was the ballerina and he was the choreographer or ballet master, as he was called. So they were there until 1917. And he seems to have gone his way. There was certainly a split in their relationship. And then she decides to um, go to Moscow and try to rejoin her brother. But she needed exit visas and all of this. Now, it's very interesting that she wanted to go legally, because at that point, lots of people from St. Petersburg and um, Moscow were fleeing um, Russia, or free, fleeing the revolution and going first to, the, to Ukraine, which had declared itself a republic, and were turning Kiev into a really, a very, very exciting um, place artistically. And then from there going to Odessa and then abroad. We now understand that geography. <laughs> a lot better. But she couldn't get, she was able to get an exit visa for herself, her children, her, her one daughter and her mother. But she, but she couldn't get transit visas across France and through other countries. So she herself now reunited with her husband, danced for a while in Moscow, and then they went to Kiev because, as they said, food was more plentiful. But a lot more people were there. And also in that kind of open moment, she was able to establish her own school. And this she called the school, not of ballet, not of dance, but the school of movement, uh, which says how she was really trying to think through what it was that distinguished dance in all its form. What was movement? She thought of herself as a supporter of the revolution, but she ended up fleeing from the new Soviet Union to the capitalist West. And we need to fast forward now to 1934 when Nijinska comes to Hollywood for the first time. One of my favorite parts of the book, she was 43 at that point. She'd been asked by the famous exile Austrian film director Max Reinhardt to choreograph the ballet sequences of the 1935 film version of Shakespeare's 
A Midsummer Night's Dream. This became a legendary movie starring James Cagney, Olivia de Havilland, with 15-year-old Mickey Rooney playing Puck, really an unforgettable part. What was it like for Najinska to work on a big Hollywood movie with some of the top people in the industry? Well, the one I think she most cared about was Puck, because I think she felt she could turn him into a dancer. Of course, why would he want to become a ballet dancer? But nevertheless, <laughs> she definitely felt he had the makings of a fine ballet dancer. She was delighted to be invited to Hollywood. It was a very European group that she was surrounded by. I'm sure they mostly spoke uh, Polish and uh, French with a little English thrown in. So I think she would have been at home in that atmosphere. Also, you know, she had worked with often with dancers who didn't speak Russian or French. And she would often say it's demonstration, it's touch, it's um, showing that where I convey what it is that I want. And she managed to do that over and over and over again until the very end of her life. She had left behind a slew of debts and Hollywood enabled her to pay off those as well as support her children because she had two children in Paris. You know, she was the breadwinner for the family. And after World War II, of course, came the Cold War when Russian ballet dancers who defected were big news. The Dancer Defects, one of my favorite books about this period. We have to talk about Balanchine and the politics of Russian exiles in ballet in the United States in this period. Balanchine was one of the first defectors before the Cold War. He started, of course, the American Ballet Theater in New York City. During the Cold War, Balanchine played the part of the anti-Soviet defector to perfection. Nijinska was not, not actually that interested in the defectors. She didn't really talk much about Nureyev. What really excited her was to see the Bolshoi touring and, and to meet people like the ballerina Galina Ulanova. In fact, there is a photo of Ulanova and Nijinska in Nijinska's backyard in Pacific Palisades with the ocean in the back. Um, so this excited her enormously, but what she couldn't understand was how they could have such wonderful companies with such a high level of technique and such terrible choreography. <laughs> and she began working desperately with Ulanova and also with Grigorovich, who now is considered the oldest traditionalist um, ballet master, but at the time was very young and was considered a newcomer to um, stage her ballet Les Noces at the Bolshoi. She really wanted that. So in a sense, she's a friends. She had a number of contacts during the period of the thaw with Soviet people, with um, the Soviet um, historian, ballet historian Vera Krasovskaya, and she reunited through correspondence with many of her students, her former students from the School of Movement in Kiev, who by then had come to Moscow and were living there. So she, re and she donates a few things to Russian collections from her own collection. So she clearly did not have the strong anti-Soviet uh, views of many of her, of many of her uh, colleagues. Uh, in the ballet world and, and elsewhere among the emigre communities. One theme we've neglected throughout this period, she is a woman in what is pretty much a man's world. Modern dances, Martha Graham and Mary Vigman, but 
that's not really the case for most of the ballet world that she's come out of. The ballet world is more complicated than that because on the one hand, you have a you have these huge corps de ballets, you have these companies with many, many women. However, what she objected to was both the one uh, was the ballerina role, that this is the only role for a woman in, in ballet. And of course, she insisted not only on the ability to choreograph, in other words, throw a few steps together, but to have a vision of where of what a ballet was and where it could go. And this is why she kept struggling to have her own company. So she could put these dances on the, uh, she could create these dances without someone saying, oh, no, 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 I have an idea for this ballet or for, for that ballet. But it meant that she was again and again being betrayed, I mean, to use a word, <laughs> like that, that they were giving her a hard time. She constantly had to start from the beginning. And it was never, you know, she could never seem to get a secure position anywhere. And I also think there were tremendous problems with some of the men um, in the companies, not only with the administrators, but also with some of the male dancers, unless they had worked with her and understood that she could give them a great deal. Many of them just challenged her authority. I mean, there's a story of Jerome Robbins walking into one of her rehearsals at ballet theater in the early 40s in New York and sort of sauntering around. And she was livid, furious. And then, and he never, you know, and then eventually he went to the bar or something and she was fit to be tied. Of course, in his later life, that's exactly how he behaved. I mean, he would not tolerate that kind of behavior in the studio whatsoever. He'd throw a chair at someone. <laughs> but she was also criticized for being tough and for in, um, imposing discipline. Uh, and while and she was never criticized, she was criticized in a way that other choreographers such as Anthony Tudor, such as Michelle Fokine, such as Robbins himself, um, who perhaps um, exemplified the same kind of studio behavior, if not something much worse. Last question. Why do you think Nijinska did not leave the same kind of cultural imprint that Balanchine uh, did? In the review of your book in The Nation, Jennifer Wilson's explanation of this is that Nijinska, quote, would never fully acclimate to the strictures of the supposedly free world. Her spirit never left Kiev. Close quote. I wonder if that's the way you see it. Well, I, I do think there is something to that, that her spirit remained in Kiev and that she kept trying to recapitulate that moment of freedom in her studio and that sense of sharing and of openness and uh, an openness that was free of market forces um, again and again. But I also think it's because she was never able to get a company she never was able to have a long-term association with a company. And works survive when they're created or maintained in a company for many, many years. That's why Balanchine had a huge imprint. He had the New York City Ballet, which he founded in 1948. It's still around. <laughs> Nijinska's companies kept, you know, fleeing. You know, they kept dying, um, including those she thought would would live her association with 
ballet theater was in some ways fortunate because La Fille Magarde, her first work for the company, actually survived many more years than I thought it had. But then eventually it was re the ballet was re-choreographed and there went Nijinska's ballet. So this again and again happened to her. And I think that's the worst thing for choreographers, that there's no place for your dances to be performed. And unfortunately, the recording technology was not good enough. Um, we have snippets, poor snippets of her choreography during the 40s and early 50s. But we have very, we have no sustained sense. And the only two ballets that remain in repertory, Les Nos and Les Biches, have done so because they were revived, they were restaged at the Royal Ballet in London in, 19, in the 1960s. And they were notated, they were filmed, and they were performed again and again over time so that they sang roots in the, um, in the company and in the minds of the audience. Lynn Garofola's new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. You can read about it in the nation's book issue. Lynn, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, well, thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.